Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Chitheads podcast. My guest today is John J. Thetominal. John is the first of a number of individuals I'm interviewing for this new Chithead series that we're calling Radical Theology. Over a number of different episodes of the Chitheads podcast, I'll be talking to theologians and philosophical theologians about the concept of theology from different perspectives, from different traditions, and then also comparative theologians, people who are working at the intersection of different traditions, and also constructive theologians, theologians who are expanding what theology is and can be by taking into consideration contemporary social issues like climate change, racism, LGBTQ plus issues, and notions of, of, of our relationship with the divine as it makes sense for our contemporary world. So I'm really particularly excited about this series because I think there's so much interesting work being done in the world of theology, cross-cultural theology, constructive theology, comparative theology, that really takes theology out of the gutter, so to speak, um, where for many people it sits because theology is often associated with rigid fundamentalisms. But theology is this um, broad and, and potentially very open-minded way of reconceiving of the divine, of rethinking about our notions of God and divinity, and, and so too what it means to be human and what it means to be a creature on this planet um, living with other creatures and other human beings. So I'm really looking forward to this uh, series of interviews, and I hope you enjoy them. If you'd like to watch these as videos, if you'd like to see the interviews as they happen in video form, you can go to the show notes for this particular podcast episode. Just navigate to embodiedphilosophy.com, find John J. Thetominal's podcast, and in the show notes, there'll be a link to a course a free course in our course library called Radical Theology. And if you just enroll in that course, it just requires an email address and you'll get access to all of the forthcoming videos of this series as a free course. In that free course, you'll also find articles written by the guests of the Radical Theology series, articles that are available as PDF downloads. And a lot of these articles I've actually read in preparation for these interviews. So it gives you an opportunity to um, get a little more clarity around the ideas that we talk about and to dive a little bit more deeply into the work of our esteemed guests. You can also just head to the course section of the Embodied Philosophy website and find the Radical Theology course there. So without further ado, let's move into our interview now with John J. Thetominal. I hope you enjoy it. This is part of a series um, I think Casey shared with you that um, is on radical theology, and I'm really wanting to explore from a variety of different traditions the concept of theology, you know, conceived um, alternatively to the ways in which theology is generally conceived, which is usually this sort of, um, you know, stuffy, just rational, rational justification, rational arguments for the justification of God that are specific to Christianity. 
Yeah. And that's what most people think of theology. So the idea behind the series is to is to is to basically just frustrate or rather subvert that that commonplace misunderstanding that most lay people have about theology because there's such interesting work happening in both academia and in in, in more popular um, intellectual scholarship about this very topic. So so I say that because these usually this is a podcast just for audio. And so I wouldn't really care what things look like, um, but we are going to release it um, as a video on EPTV, which are, is our streaming service. Um, so, so anyway, we we this will be the first video, and actually, I'm really excited to talk to you because I um, I hadn't I I read your The Imminent Divine part of The Imminent Divine, which I really enjoyed, um, and then when I started to read the articles for this. Um, for this interview, I, you know, got introduced to your more, I guess it's what your more recent work focused on kind of, um, theology without walls and, and multi-religious identity. And these ideas, John, I just find so interesting, prescient and, and also quite affirming and liberating to, I think a lot of people in our audience who probably inhabit that space largely. Um, most people, I think, kind of have this sort of uh, double-sided spiritual slash religious identity, whether they, you know, you know, go to a Christian church and then practice yoga, you know, or there are so many variations of it. And there's so much guilt, you know, it seems like associated with, you know, oh, I'm playing for the wrong team or, you know, (laughs) you know, there's a very kind of sports sectarian mentality around these things. So anyway, I'm really excited to talk to you. Um, But before I dive in, I just want to read, I just want to share a little bit about you with the listeners. All right. So I am speaking today with John Thetominal, Thetominal, uh, phenomenal, uh, as it's pronounced. <laughs> He's an associate professor of theology and world religions at Union Theological Seminary in New York, um, New York, which is where I lived for the last ten years. I wasn't I wasn't aware you were there until I was preparing for this, um, and sorry we missed each other. He's the author of The Imminent Divine, God, Creation, and the Human Predicament, an East-West Conversation, and most recently, Circling the Elephant, a Comparative Theology of Religious Diversity. Presently, he is working on a book entitled Desiring Truth, The Quest for Interreligious Wisdom. He is a past president of the North American Paul Tillich Society and the current chair of the AAR's Theological Education Committee. He teaches a wide variety of courses, including Hindu religious thought and practice, Buddhist-Christian dialogue, and Paul Tillich as public theologian, process theology, double belonging on multiple religious participation. Thetominal is an Anglican Episcopalian, a recently ordained deacon in the Anglican Church of Canada, who also raises and practices, or excuse me, reads and practices in traditions of Hindu and Buddhist non-dualism. So with that, I want to just officially say welcome, John, to the Chitheads podcast, and thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, I'm excited. <laughs> I'm looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, me too. And um, I, I, this morning I was in line for getting my booster shot, and the whole time I was in line, I was listening to your uh, interview with very funny and thoughtful guy. I'm, I'm forgetting his name. Tip, Tip Fuller. 
Is that his oh, name? Oh, Trip. Trip Fuller. Trip, yeah. Trip Fuller. Yeah. Fascinating conversation between the two of you. And um, some of the things that I've, I've prepared will kind of draw a little bit from what I was listening to this morning. Um, but a lot of my questions, as I mentioned before, are really based on on a few of the articles that I read of yours, um, because as I mentioned before, I am a graduate student right now. My my reading time is a little more limited than it used to be, so I focused on, um, or you know, for extracurricular things. But I focused on um, uh, articles that I feel like really gave me a good sense of of kind of the the thrust of your work right now. And, and one of them that you shared, um, is theology without walls as the quest for interreligious wisdom, then true to and true for the problem and promise of religious truth for theology without walls. Um, and then there's one on yoga and I, I, I'm misplacing it right now, but it's yoga and the Eucharist or Eucharist upstairs and yoga downstairs. That's right. Yes. And then I found another one when I was doing some preparation, which I really uh, was where I started, which was how not to be a religion, genealogy, identity, wonder, um, which I'm really glad I started with because that's where I want to start with um, today is to talk a little bit about some of the ideas you unpack in that article with regards to uh, how you express it, the de-religionization I think it is of religion, but before all of that, in the interview with Trip, you talk about how so much of the kind of adventure of your own thought and the adventure of yourself as an intellectual and academic has been informed by uh, this experience of cultural dislocation and how that's sort of central uh, in the spirit of your work. So, can you tell us a little bit about kind of the history of that and how it has informed? The direction of your work and and how it's unfolded today. Yeah, it's a it's a great question to to ponder. I mean, I came to the U.S. Um, when I was eight and a half, almost nine, uh, from South India. Uh, I was born in the state of Kerala, and at that time, I was living in Tamil Nadu with uh, with my uncle and aunt and first cousins, and then arrived here. Um, having grown up in an Indian Christian community and arriving here uh, and beginning the process of trying to figure out what it meant or what it means to be Indian. And my Indian Christianity didn't offer an answer to that question uh, because it was a bit inflected by the, the influence of uh, the Anglican church. It's an Indian Christian church that traces its history to St. Thomas the Apostle, it's the Martoma Church, Toma for Thomas. So we have a long Christian history uh, in India, uh, as old as anywhere else in the world. But when you come to the U.S. as an Indian Christian and you're trying to figure out what it means to be Indian, the Indian Christianity won't help you because that actually is a commonality you share with everyone else. Mm -hmm. So really very early on, even in high school, <clears throat> I began to be interested in other religious traditions. And I had uh, an uncle of mine who in high school uh, introduced us to uh, what was then called the religions of man, uh, Houston Smith's classic book, uh, mm -hmm. which subsequently got retitled the world's religions and the Hindu and Buddhist traditions as it described there were fascinating to me. 
And that was the beginning of the, the process of sort of trying to address the cultural dislocation by rooting myself. Surely a weird kid's way of rooting myself, right? Who does that? Um, but it worked. Uh, it, it did uh, elicit these deep lifelong interests, not just intellectual interests, but a, a deep longing for and uh, delight in non-dual traditions. Mm. So that's the story in brief. <laughs> so your experience actually wasn't um, of of moving from India as a child to the United States and then and then becoming a Christian as a sort of pressure to acclimate wow. to the culture. You were actually you were a Christian in India. So what was what was the process like for you of then kind of um, discovering Hinduism? Um, native to your, you know, native to India as, as a kind of evolving religious intellectual? And, and how did that shift the perspective of your own theology? Yeah, in the, in the preface to the Circling the Elephant, I, I do what a lot of intellectuals assiduously avoid, which is <laughs> give an account. Yeah, not uh, allowed to do that. Yes, we're not supposed to talk honestly about these things, but <laughs> it's so absurd. Uh, a weird feature of uh, my young life was that, uh, and this continued for quite a while, well into college and and uh, beyond. I, I had a kind of sense of um, of divine imminence uh, that that was not entirely to be accounted as personal. It wasn't like God was chatting me up or I was chatting God up, but a kind of thereness, a kind of presence um, with the affect tone of joy, uh, a kind of it is well with my soul, to use that the lyrics for, from that great old hymn. And I, I realized as I began reading uh, the Hindu materials, that this traditions of affirmation that God is not merely a transcendent personal other, but imminent uh, as the ground of being and as uh, chit, you know, to, to refer to the podcast title, uh, was truer to my experience or at least one dimension of my religious experience, that, that, that this non-dual sense of ultimate ultimacy is nearer to me than I am to myself, which is, of course, I think an Augustinian phrase, uh, that really named with accuracy my own experience. Uh, and I, that's, I, it's, it's not that I needed devotionalism, right? I didn't need... Uh, Ramanuja or Madhva to to help me out. I've got plenty of devotionalism in Christian traditions. It's the it's the deep non-dualism that uh, called out to me as articulating a dimension of my own experience that that uh, was so meaningful to me. So as I as I mentioned, John, you know, I started my research for this interview with the article "How Not to Be a Religion," um, which is quite a provocative title, um, and it immediately struck a chord with me because in it you talk about how the hermetically sealed category or notion of religion emerged through modernization, 
um, or you suggest this, with the split between the secular and the religious. We've talked a little bit, I can't quite remember when, I've talked a little bit about this this kind of history before, but I'm wondering if you would just um, go into that history a little bit and, and talk about you know, why it's become an obstacle for us in terms of our own um, uh, theological possibilities. Well, in religious studies, um, it is really one of the, the sort of growth industries, if you will, uh, in, in recent scholarly literature. Uh, specifically, there's just all manner of people inspired by the work of Talal Assad, the anthropologist, who have become mindful of the fact that uh, the category religion is not an eternal category. We've long had the word in the West, but a variety of religious traditions uh, and languages, not, not just religious traditions, languages have no analogous category. <laughs> so when um, Japan meets the West, there's the question of how to translate the word religion in, uh, in, the, in the first letters received. Uh, by the Japanese. And, and everyone's perplexed about how to translate the word because there's no cognate word. Um, and it's not just a matter of finding the right word for a pre-existent concept, but the pre-existent concept does not exist. Um, so that, that, that translational problem points very quickly to a rather complex constellation of issues, right? If a particular linguistic community doesn't even have a, a term for religion, then perhaps the term and what it refers to isn't a universal uh, feature of every culture and every people and every language. Uh, that's a big clue, a big clue. Um, so what do we take for granted when we deploy the word religion? Well, um, in the West, uh, and we can trace the history of this. We, we have come to think that there are, first of all, parts of our lives that are religious and parts of our lives that are not. But when could that distinction have emerged? Right? Only at the moment where the secular is invented. Right? You have to actually categorize a number of things as not religious in order to produce religion and something else that is not that, right? Which is the secular. So, so that's a, a big clue that the, that the idea itself emerges in the production of the modern, if by modern you mean that period of time where we disaggregated and invented the secular and invented the religious. Now, uh, one of the uh, funny things that you quickly learn is that other traditions start learning to do this disaggregation under imperial pressure from the West, but they don't do the separation the same way. So there's lots to be studied about the production of multiple different secularities in different parts of the world. But so begin. So the first part of the answer is um, in order to have the notion uh, that there are parts of our lives that are religious, we have to invent the contrary term. And then in that process, we've also begun to believe that there are these specific religions, not just the invention of the religious. There are these religions. And normatively, you can only belong to one of them at a time. Um, so religion 
proper religious belonging is like Western monogamy, right? You can only be in one marriage at least at a time, right? So likewise, <laughs> you can normatively belong to only one religion at a time. Now, that's just not the experience of what um, of religious life as it's lived in most of human history for most parts of the world. So uh, the monogamy pattern kicks in. Uh, then the idea becomes that these religious traditions are highly integrated uh, and characterized by a deep grammar, such that although religious traditions may change in, uh, in appearance, underneath appearance, there's a deep, constant, translinguistic, transhistorical grammar. Uh, now, what, what does that mean? Well, that means you can't combine ingredients from different religious grammars because the result will be just complete nonsense, right? It would be like uh, adding elements of soccer and chess together. I mean, they're both games. <laughs> they're both That's games. A great right? analogy. Yeah, I mean, they're both games, right? But nothing good will come of it if you try to, <laughs> you know. Some, some I like imagining it, though. It's a great visual. Yes, uh, it's... it's it's a Monty Python esque. There's a, they have yes. a skit where the philosophers are playing soccer and trying to figure out what to do. <laughs> but 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 you see, all of these notions uh, are characteristically Western tropes that make belonging necessarily singular, um, religious traditions necessarily inimical. Um, or incomprehensible to each other. And the only way you can really understand a religious tradition is to convert, right? Mm-hmm. You can you, you only learn by learning the grammar, like learning Sanskrit, right? You have to speak it, write it, think it before you can, before you know what is, what to do with it. So likewise, a religion only becomes intelligible uh, on the far side of conversion. All of these make singularity. Uh, systematicity, uniformity, uh, features of of religions. Um, And that's deeply problematic and untrue to the experience of what most religious traditions are like. So you've diagnosed the 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 way in which religions have been constructed kind of in the wake of this modernization. I am a little bit curious, though, if you think, has secularism ever truly been secular in the sense that has it ever truly been, you know, um, divorced from a kind of religious impulse in some way? Because it seems to me that on the one hand, you could argue that secularism has always been sort of a kind of underbelly of Christianity because it was birthed in a Christian, Christian context. And then at the same time, you know, especially when we get to, and maybe this is where we want to go next, when we get to your definition of religion, it seems like, um, and you talk about qualitative orientations that involve therapeutic mechanisms and um, interpretive schemes. And it seems to me that that's such, I I love that definition, but but it also seems broad enough to include... um, secular religions or secularism as a religion? Um, Absolutely. Now, there's just just so much to be said here that I am having to censor myself, so to speak. Uh, 
You know, one fantastic resource on this, uh, just as a matter of history, is Jason Josephson Storm's uh, book now. I can't remember the title, but he points out that many of the so-called inventors of religions and inventors of the secular were attending seances and deeply involved in various kinds of spiritualism. So just as a matter of historical record, um, the, the, the inventors of the secular were not nearly as secular as we thought they were. So that's just uh, one key point that gets, gets the history right um, and so complexifies this narrative of the, of the uh, disenchanted secular. There was never any disenchanted secular. Uh, and that's before we get to the way you put the, your, your, your question, right? One, one way I, I talk about religion with my students is to say something like, you know, uh, religion is what you do with your desires. Uh, mm. You know, this is a very Augustinian uh, account of, uh, of religion, right? What you, what you desire, where your heart lies, uh, there, is your, there is your God. And, and, and the, the work of forming and shaping and tutoring desire, well, no mechanism more sophisticated in the, in, the, in the framing and tutoring of desire has ever been invented than uh, the market and uh, all that goes around the market, including advertising and all the ways in which our desires are shaped and formed at visceral levels that we're not even conscious of. So the idea that, um, that we're not religious when we're being secular is, is deeply problematic if you have this kind of account of uh, religion as intimately tied to ordering desire. Mm. Uh, so, you know, religion is a kind of work of erotics, right? Of, yeah. of, of saying, this is what is worth desiring, and this is why it's worth desiring that. Well, that work continues most most uh, thoroughly uh, under under the uh, the drive of capitalism. I love that um, you know what we do with our desires because no one is exempt from that process, right? Everyone has desires. Well, presumably, I'm sure there. I don't know if there are some states of um, disability that don't have them, but um, uh, but you know, no one escapes that, which is. You know, it, I it, I love that definition because it gets kind of to the heart of what I've I've been been trying to say in different ways is that you can't get around God. Like God is sort of always there. You've just sort of misrecognized or misnamed or rather chosen a name that's so narrow, narrowly constructed that it's uh, possible then to negate it, right? Whereas if you're you know if you're talking about what you do with your desires. That seems to be it's, it seems to be difficult to get outside the universality of that or the um, the shared um, trajectory of that because we all have desires that we're that we're looking to do something with. But you know, uh, just to kind of put a normative spin on it, if we were to try to discern then between you know what are good and not so great, you know, ways to harness or to channel our desires, you know, when we're speaking of capitalism, for example, that's highly destructive, um, is, do you think what, the, one of the elements of that is the kind of unconscious um, uh, ways in which desires are channeled within the, mar through the market, as opposed to religion, where there's at least some kind of 
cognitive, you know, well, I mean, you could have blind faith, I suppose, but cognitive understanding of, of how you are using certain mechanisms, devices, tools, and techniques to harness desire for transformative effect. Yeah. Would that, I, that be I, the difference? Yes. Uh, I, I've started using this, this phrase, which strikes people as unusual, um, but it's interesting that they do. I, I, I've started talking about truing desire, mm. um, which is partly what I'm doing in uh, writing a book called Desiring Truth. I'm, I'm playing with uh, those two terms, desire and truth, and what the connections between the two might be. Um, and that's fascinating to think about, right? So why do people react to me oddly? It's like, well, that's a kind of strange phrase, truing desire. Well, what's odd is uh, about that term is that most of us think that desire has no noetic value. It doesn't actually tell us anything about the world. It has no cognitive content. To know is one thing and desire is another. And between the two, there is this vast chasm. Uh, and I think at least one of the ways of thinking about what modernity is, uh, is the, the moment in which that split is, is instantiated and implemented in our imaginations. It's a kind of derivative of Cartesianism, right? To know is, is a work of the solar mind and de desiring is a work of the body. Yeah, get rid of that. Right. So once you have that that bifurcation sort of installed, you're not going to think about desiring as itself a kind of knowing. Mm. Uh, and nor can you think that can be better desiring or, yeah. or worse desiring, right? But we're living through a historical moment where we're waking up to the fact that uh, the production of endless desires for goods to undergird an economic system premised on infinite growth on a finite planet is just bonkers. Mm -hmm. uh, like literally you can't have infinite growth <laughs> on a finite planet, but the entire global economy is structured around an economy of constant growth. That's how we measure the economy. Is it growing? Mm. Right. So, and, and, and we uh, are the, the, uh, the linchpins of that. We, we have to keep desiring if the economy is, is to keep growing. Uh, and so the installation and production of disordered desire is a fundamental feature of what it means to be human in our historical moment. And if you look at any religious tradition, any, the, the idea that infinite, uh, or, or let me put it this way, endless desiring uh, is, is anything but just crazy. Uh, yeah, you can't find that. It, it's a kind of consensus truth. They, we'll, we can have arguments about what's worth desiring, but we know that that this this is uh th this is deeply problematic right so yeah a desire is worthy if it is in some sense true if it mm -hmm. desires what is worth desiring right? mm -hmm. i'm 
I've been pontificating, so let me. Yeah, pull. no, please pontificate away. I love it. So I, I, I want to go back to this, um, or rather, uh, go into this a little bit more. This idea of, of um, truth and desire, because it, it reminds me of one of my favorite parts of your conversation with Trip, where you were talking about um, it, the the idea of truth as just being apparent, right? Opening your eyes and seeing mm -hmm. something and and knowing truth. Um, which seems to be derivative, perhaps, of some kind of version of scientific materialism, um, that this is a relatively recent approach to truth. And, you know, prior to or even another, I don't know, uh, cultural context, there is this sense of, you know, truth as being something that requires a certain predisposition, right? One has to cultivate oneself in a certain way to to experience truth or to see truth, and I put quotes around that. Um, and so I want, wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, because I think that comes to then one of the points you make in one of your articles where you say, you said very explicitly that part of the problem, or rather what we need to get back to is practice and, and less about doctrine and more about the disciplines or rather the, trans, the transformative schemas or um, therapeutic regimes that are going to actually cultivate the body, mind, spirit in such a way that that truth can be realized or revealed. Yeah. Uh, Jacob, lest, lest our viewers and listeners think that, uh, that this idea is, uh, is the fulmination of an exotic or es esoteric mystic, um, <laughs> it, I, I derived this idea from none other than Michel Foucault. <laughs> Which I found very surprising because I never I never think of Foucault and theology in the same vein, but it really, it made me, I, I studied continental philosophy in, 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 in one of my graduate degrees and, and Foucault was one of my favorites also as sort of being, you know, someone in the, you know, gay tradition um, of thinkers. And, um, and, uh, and so it was very surprising to hear you bring Foucault into the conversation, but I, I was very excited by it. Yeah, I, I now, um, because it's just now 8.17 here and I'm under-caffeinated, I'm forgetting the precise title of, uh, I think it's Formation of the Self, the lecture Hermeneutics of the Self. Hermeneutics, Hermeneutics of, the of the Self. Yes, that's where this, this point is uh, made with provocative clarity. I mean, he really does say... Uh, that the enlightenment is the moment is the first moment in human history where where we came to believe that all we needed to do in order to know the truth was open our eyes um, truth is what the senses reveal but prior to the enlightenment what he calls the cartesian moment but he doesn't blame it all on descartes and he's, he's a far more sophisticated thinker than that but it's a useful label for him, the Cartesian moment. Prior to that, he would argue that every um, philosophical system or religious tradition would have required you to undergo some set of formative practices so that you are fitted to know the truth. You couldn't just open your eyes. It was understood that your desires, when they're out of whack, makes it impossible for you to even want to know the truth. You know, I, I always uh, uh, reminded when I'm talking about this to, you know, to that uh, scene in A Few Good Men where Tom Cruise is uh, interrogating Jack Nicholson's character. 
Nicholson's character says, you can't handle the truth. Uh, and, and Foucault and, and uh, the traditions of thought prior to that would say, you don't even want to know the truth. I mean, how can you know the truth if you don't want to know it? Uh, and the heart that is untutored is, is ill-equipped to discern what is true mm-hmm. from what is false. If you want to have any grasp on what is happening in our post-truth moment, in any real depth, you've got to realize that what we're suffering through in this moment is a kind of collapse uh, of, of this paradigm, this, this Descartes, the Cartesian moment, as Foucault calls it. The idea that people can know the truth uh, apart from wanting to know the truth and apart from being tutored to know the truth through various therapeutic regimes or spiritual exercises. This is an idea, by the way, that he shares with uh, Pierre Hadot, right? This is why at that point in their uh, friendship and conversation, there was such a rich recognition of, of mutual interests in, in the formation of the self, in the hermeneutics of the subject. Mm. So that kind of brings us to um, uh, the topic of multi-religious identity, which is kind of the the area I want to move into now. And um, and this to me was you know one of one of the other exciting features of your work in the way that you encourage and and I said as I said before in some sense kind of affirm the experience of multi-religious identity and. Um, why I think why I was so excited by this is because I think for many people this will be a little bit you know liberating to hear because there is this sort of sense of religion is like my sports team and I, I you know you either support this one or that one and in the end you hope the other one loses <laughs> you know um, so you point out rather that you know this idea of exclusive religious identity again is rather new and that if we look back um, historically, or even if we look to other contemporary contexts, we see the existence of individuals who are participating or or belonging to um, more than one religious tradition. So, um, you know, I guess the question is, you know, what does that, what does that mean to have a multi-religious identity? And how does that how or what are the, the possibilities in terms of how that might shape the religious experience of of that person who is kind of crossing religious boundaries? Yeah, it's it's a it's a lovely and rich question. Um, I th- I think it's be- when we talk about multi religious identity in the West, we we typically think of people who choose um, to engage in the practices. Um, or insi- or draw from the insights of more than one religious tradition. So one thinks about the Christian who is also a nightstand Buddhist, at least, uh, who is also engaging in some forms of meditation. Or as the title of my article uh, you cited earlier uh, points to, there are people who do, literally do yo- yoga downstairs and Eucharist upstairs uh, in one church community. Um, so, so there's a sense in which many of us are, are forming these kinds of braided cells that are drawing upon the repertoires of more than one religious tradition. 
that's what usually comes to mind. But I pointed out, of course, that that in China, um, it's quite common that communities are informed by Confucian, Taoist, folk uh, traditions simultaneously. And, and to disaggregate which part of the self is shaped by Confucian sentiments, Taoist uh, orientations, and and folk values and practices would be, you couldn't dissect a human being uh, and say, well, yeah, this is, this is, right? So there's a, there's a profound sense in which I want to name that the selectivity of the modern person who consciously chooses more than one tradition is just one recent way uh, multi-religious identity uh, emerges to our attention. Mm-hmm. And as is often the case, we start thinking about things when they happen in the West, uh, and then scholars turn to writing about them. When other parts of the world, you know, it's not at all uncommon for Christians, uh, for for Hindus making Hindu pilgrimages to stop on the side of, of Christian churches and light candles as they proceed. So, you know, we don't theorize these things until <laughs> it... it, it it takes on a particular Western uh, salience. So now, this kind of Western way of being multi-religious, we we tend to poo-poo, we tend to dismiss. Uh, we think of it as you know, uh, lining up at the divine deli and uh, taking a little side of this or that, and and there's a kind of dismissive attitude towards this. But it's worth remembering. It's worth remembering, Jacob and friends <laughs> who are listening, <laughs> that, that some of the, the people who pioneered our first explorations in these directions included people like Thomas Merton, right? The, the, the monastic seriousness of uh, folks like Merton and in India, Swami Abhishekthananda uh, and others right? These were not people who were fooling around, (laughs) you know? These folks had an intuition, um, to put it in the language of John Donne, that the journey of our time might be the journey of crossing over and coming back, Um, that this might be a, a particular religious calling that modernity makes possible. So I want to I want to begin by saying this is this is this is not just a, a kind of um, you know cafeteria capitalist consumerist uh, desire. There's there can be something really deep going on here. Well, that's exactly what I wanted to kind of reflect on briefly, um, and so I'll add a little bit to that because I hear what you're saying, but it's because I think the the critical listener will be thinking well isn't this just kind of an invitation to salad bar spirituality like you know just pick and choose what you like um and then you know the one who has a more sort of i don't know a sense of religion as spiritual technologies that have you know certain trajectories of practice that that cultivate certain results that have to be really de- devoted to in order for that to take place, they might suggest that, well, you're, we're inviting people to dig 12 holes to China rather than just dig one hole. Um, you know, and uh, so, so there's those two, um, 
those two kind of cr critiques. And then there's also the third one, which you address actually in one of your articles, which is the idea of cultural misappropriation or religious misappropriation. So can you talk a little bit about how your perspective on this differs um, from, from, or rather res would respond to those, those critiques, the, the idea of digging too many holes to China, the idea of this just being salad bar spirituality, which you've already started addressing, and then the idea of misappropriation. <laughs> You know, uh, just because something can be done poorly doesn't mean that it can't be done well. <laughs> so, you know, uh, yeah, surely there can be a kind of spiritual dilettantism that 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 might, in fact, be a real danger to be to be named. But I'm not wanting to legislate the human heart and its longings mm. over much uh, now. I do think it can be cap, uh, captured by capitalism, uh, but I, I I find it curious that um, we seem to be more troubled by Buddhist Christians than Christian capitalists, right? Um, mm, yeah, that's being a good a, point. Being a Buddhist Christian, wow, that's a problem. Uh, but but being a capitalist Christian isn't. Mm. So so to. Let's be clear, we're all multiple in really problematic ways, <laughs> myself included. And that's well before I pick up a book on Buddhism. Uh, so uh, to, to those who level this charge, uh, I say unto thee, he who is without sin, let that one cast the first stone, right? Yeah. Uh, if when you tell me that your desires are not colonized by capitalism as you're trying to be Christian, then maybe I'll listen to you. But until then, uh, I'm not I'm not going to be so warm about this 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 particular critique of yours. Uh, so at least in the in, in in the desire to be Buddhist and Christian, there is a kind of congruence to ask about what lies on the far side of the ego. Is there a way of experiencing reality that can be marked by a depth of perception that comes from living the cruciform life or life without self, right? So, um, so I, I, so that's the first statement. Just because something can be done poorly doesn't mean it can't be done well. We need people to guide folks who are trying to live this kind of life. I do think comparative theologians who learn and study these traditions in depth can be pilgrims um, and guides. When you read people like Merton and Abhishekthananda, you might find resources to show how this can be done well and also the real demands upon the heart when it's done rigorously, right? Uh, Abhishekthananda struggled with how to hold together a deep... Uh, you know, almost, well, erotic longing for God with a sense that the ultimate is actually already my true self. And for him, this was a profound existential uh, struggle, how to hold these two things together. And, and uh, there's at least some ways of reading his late heart attack as generated by the, in the intensity of his desire to hold both to be true. So this isn't this isn't for <laughs> everybody, and there is intensities here, um, and th there do need to be guides. 
But almost all these things we can say for people who are within one tradition, can't we? Mm -hmm. uh, so those are some of the things I'd say for folks who say this is not uh, this is not to be done at all. Yes, there are dangers. We can be wise uh, wise towards the resources of these traditions, and we need to be taught by people in them. I, the more serious you get, the more you need actually to be studying with and learning from people in other religious traditions. Um, I sometimes say that, you know, at the early levels of multi-religious multi belonging, it's like taking uh, a, a variety of vitamins. I mean, you're not going to be helped much, but you're not going to be hurt much either, likely, right? But when you get deeper in religious traditions, then they start doing the equivalent of chemotherapy on you. And, you know, you don't want to do that on yourself, right? <laughs> you, you want to be in qualified hands when you're involved in spiritual chemotherapy. So I do think that uh, we can watch for these harms by learning with and from people who are qualified teachers in their respective traditions. And I don't know any Buddhist teacher who is going to say, oh, you're Christian, you can't come and, and, and study with me. That's just absolutely not the thing that most Buddhist teachers would say. If you want to study the Buddhist way, study the Buddhist way. Uh, when I went to study with my guru, I was, you know, I, I, in uh, Swami Paramartananda in, in Chennai, um, you know, we had a funny conversation. Uh, I said, you know, Swamiji, I know that in the Advaita tradition, I'm to regard you as the divine incarnate. But as a Christian, you know, I already have that. And, and so I'm not sure I can, you know, come to regard you that way. And he said, John, do you have any pre-existing ideas about what Shankara means? I said, no, that is enough. <laughs> he wasn't concerned about my devotion to Jesus. He just wanted me to be open-minded about how we we're going to read and study Shankara together. So I think if you study with people from other traditions who are prepared to let you in, uh, and properly fit you, you can avoid a, a great many of, of, of the dangers of uh, salad bar spirituality. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, beyond that critique, um, just to go back to what feels to be just a beautiful um, invitation in all of this is, for me at least, you know, I I come I came from a Christian background. I went to school. I went to a Christian school and went to church every Sunday, and then was quite burned by my church because of homophobia, basically. Yeah. Um, and so, and that kind of, you know, I broke up with Jesus, <laughs> basically, and um, and for for a very long time, didn't really. Um, didn't understand or didn't have a conception of what God meant for me until I found yoga and 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 then the teachings of 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 Hinduism. Um, and you know, today I I practice a in a in basically a Hindu um, a tradition of meditation. But you know, I I still feel the kind of um, um, the connection that's very deep because of my history to to my Christian background. In fact, last week I was feeling very melancholy and I decided to go to church on a Sunday. And, um, and I, I noticed after that service that 
the melancholia through the process of just sitting in and listening to, you know, a sermon. And I was able, you know, there were doctrinal things that they didn't necessarily, you know, speak to me in terms of the way I see the absolute or the ultimate now. Um, but the music, I mean, the, in this, you know, in Oxford, we have these incredible chapel choirs, right, that are just absolutely transcendent. Um, and, and so the music and, and um, it allowed kind of to, me to shift my melancholic state into longing or, or realizing or recognizing that melancholia as a kind of a longing for God. And, and that was all I needed. And, um, and so it's, uh, and then, uh, you know, and then this, of course, starting to read your stuff sort of after that, it, it's affirming of this as like, and that's okay. You know, there's still an aspect of me that is Christian, Yes. This, you know, you, you heard it here first, Chitheads listeners, please. <laughs> I don't think I've ever said that before. Um, well, for a long time anyway. And, um, and, and it is sort of, again, um, just, uh, uh, it opens up, right, the possibility that these those, these things don't have to be held um, in hermetically sealed containers. And just because I'm a, you know, a meditate, a yoga, yoga practitioner and meditator now that I can't go to church on a Sunday, even though, you know, the pastor of my my home church might think so. Um, so I just and I, I just think that there's a lot of people who would really benefit from this perspective because like I said before, there is so much sense of, of kind of um, it's one or the other. And if you start one, even with, between Hindu and Buddhist, I've noticed even in my own community, meditation community, it's like, well, the Buddhists got it wrong. You know, we can't, <laughs> we can't be, play, you know, playing with and over in that sandbox, you know, and let's talk about how ridiculous it is that, that they think that reality is empty when really reality is fullness. You know what I mean? Like it's ridiculous. Um, so, but yeah, so anyway, um, I just thought that was a really, um, uh, it's a really beautiful teaching that you offer. So, you know, one of the things you critique sort of in this vein is this metaphor of the mountain. You talked about that in the podcast um, with Trip, yeah. And I, I loved that you talked about this because I also have found the metaphor of all paths lead to the same mountaintop to be just so tired and old and really, and, you know, I'm from the Pacific Northwest. The mountains are really tall and they're quite cold and I have no interest in going to the top, even if I could. You can't get to the top of those mountains. Uh, the most I've gotten to the, you know, to the base of the highest peak of Mount Hood in Oregon, and that's probably as high as I'll ever go. Um, so it's kind of a ridiculous metaphor, this this idea of, of, of the mountain. And it, you know, it reminded me of, of when I did the interview with Edwin Bryant, who spoke about this idea of the variegated absolute, you yes. know, like that, and that seems to be the multiple peak idea, right? That, that, you know, the, ab why does the absolute have to be singular? Why, it, you know, it can be personal, it can be non-personal. There are all these possibilities based on the way, you know, that you cultivate your own self and disposition such that you have, you know, glimpses or experiences of the ultimate realizations of the ultimate that are sort of flavored with that cultivation. But you go one step further, I think, um, which I found really interesting that, um, but that this, I, because, because I, I think that that still imagines that revelation is still one or the other peak of a particular tradition. And you suggest that actually um, there is the possibility of revelation that is 
specific to or contingent upon the process of being multiple and that and that there is kind of i don't know a religion between or a a kind of revelation that happens in between the two mountain peaks you know to use the the tired metaphor so can you talk a little bit more about that about how you know and this is getting into your notion of theology of without borders where where there actually is there are unforeseen possibilities of 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 religious revelation that exist in the interstices in the intersection of of these these traditions thank you uh you ask great questions but if i might just uh go back a little bit to your profoundly personal uh recollections a moment ago of, of what it means to go to church i'm 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 deeply troubled by the impulse to sort of commit spiritual harikari, you know, uh, that, that, you know, if, if I learn to love uh, what is beautiful and true in another tradition, that must mean that mine has to be surrendered. On the contrary, the, the inclinations of the human heart are complex. Uh, and there are people like my friend Paul Nitter who wrote, you know, without the Buddha, I could not be a Christian. Um, so there's a way in which it's precisely our journey to other spiritual terrains and lands that leads us to rediscover uh, yeah. our own traditions. And then what would it mean to, 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 to silence and uh, the primary language by which I first learned to hear uh, the music of the holy, right? I mean, wow. You know, I, I think melancholy is the appropriate reaction, you know, because the heart learned first to, to seek the holy in a primary language. And then it was wounded thereby by, by, uh, by you know, uh, spiritual violence and homophobia and the like. Um, but the tradition is not just that, right? So the, the capacity to recover one's first language and learn to sing and seek the holy in, in and through that language even as one continues to deepen into another language, these are rich human possibilities. Mm. And I, I just don't want to short circuit them. Uh, I, I think there is uh, great violence there. So that's just the first point. And it connects, mm. obviously, as you can see, to the second point of, you, of the question you're asking. And yeah, and thank you for that because actually that's exactly I I have developed a very a much more nuanced and and maybe subtleized is the right word uh, um, uh, um, relationship with Christianity. I don't I wouldn't call myself Christian, but I would say that you know my relationship with it is much different. I I, I can see the beauty. I can see I what I can get. I have a glimpse of the esoteric core of the tradition that I don't think I would have had any sense of otherwise um, had I not gone through this process of, you know, moving uh, through and into another tradition, like you were saying. Yeah. And, and speaking as an Anglican cleric now, I, I would say to you, I have not the least interest in whether you're Christian. I have a great interest in whether you are a follower of Jesus the Christ. Uh, you know, and I and I think Mahatma Gandhi, for example, was a brilliant follower of Jesus the Christ, and he would say so. He was not going to convert, uh, and he didn't think conversion was anything he wanted. So, you know, what does it mean to be a follower of the one who called us to live in beloved community? Uh, to use 
King's language, King's way of being Christian. Well, I, 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 I believe firmly in, 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 in the quest for the beloved community as articulated by Jesus the Christ, and I want to be his disciple. I don't want to necessarily wear the label Christian, which is soiled by all manner of abuse these days. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so anyway, that's to, 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 to say that the, the tradition can be reclaimed and its power. And I think there's something about that work of reclaiming one's tradition that is part of the kind of faithfulness of, of moving deeply into other religious traditions. It's like people who enter a new relationship without having worked over the harms and relational complications of the first, you're going to bring your yourself with all its baggage into the new tradition, and you haven't done the work to heal. So, um, so all this goes to your your next uh, and really searching question. I do think that um, you know the better metaphor is the older one, not the mountain, but the elephant. Uh, and hence the title for the new book, Circling the Elephant. It's, it's the oldest metaphor, I think, available to uh, and, and surely familiar to Chithead listeners, right? Because it's found in Buddhist and Jain texts. Um, it's, it's ancient, and virtually every contemporary Hindu guru deploys that uh, metaphor in one way or another. Well, it intimates that there really might be complexity in divinity, not merely complexity generated by my projections onto divinity, right? So one way that this is badly done is uh, a kind of Kantianism that is ascribed to Hick and my friends who are followers of John Hick, the philosopher of religion say, well, John, he didn't really mean to sound as Kantian as he did. And that's not what, (laughs) what he's really saying. But on his account, If you approach the divine through a personal lens, it's going to, you're going to encounter it as personal. If you approach the divine through a transpersonal or impersonal lens, that's what you're going to get back. But that, that doesn't, that doesn't sing to me because it sounds like the infinite is a mirror and whatever you project onto it gets, get, gets, uh, projected back to you. That, that's, that's boring and uh, solipsistic and narcissistic. Well, mm-hmm. what if there really is a dimension of the divine life that is transpersonal, uh, that is like a groundless ground, an abyss? Uh, and what if there is a dimension of the divine life that addresses you um, and, 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 and in that address, there is a kind of felt longing that is complex because it's God's longing for you and your longing for God, both at the same time in some way that's different. It's hard to sort out. Are you the one doing the longing? Is God doing the longing? Right. Uh, and, and, and there are dimensions of our traditions that articulate that both are true. Um, and and to imagine that the di- that the divine is not a multiplicity, uh, but just a kind of absolute singularity of undifferentiatedness, it doesn't seem rich. Um, it doesn't seem adequate. And so part of what I think double belonging can do for those who are serious is it can 
it can attune us through these therapeutic regimes to different dimensions of the divine life that might be fitted together. How that happens is, is not, not for me to sort of specify completely and exhaustively, but I think it's possible. And I do have some preliminary theories that I can <laughs> share with Why you. Why not? Give, it, give us one of those preliminary theories. Well, one of the ways I've started talking about this, and this is at the end of Circling the Elephant, is to begin with a, begin with a kind of threefold wonder. Right. I, I say that that there's at least three kinds of religious wonder articulated by various strands of the world's religious traditions. There is the wonder that there is anything at all. Okay. I mean, you see this in a variety of traditions. Wow, sheer being is mystery. And then there's the wonder about particularity, that that every single thing in the world is just that. And, and, and is marked by a kind of exquisite particularity. I mean, if, you, if I look closely at you, Jacob, your left and right eyebrows won't be exactly the same, right? Reality is just loaded with particularity and singularity. So there's a wonder about that. Wow, why should that be? And then there's a wonder that any of those singular things is only what it is by by way of being in relation to everything else. So there's the wonder about relatedness. So there's the wonder about sheer being, there's the wonder of singular being, and then there's the wonder of relational being. You know enough about a variety of religious traditions and strands thereof to see how this could correlate, right? The, the wonder about sheer being uh, resonates richly with ground of being traditions. Uh, whether they are Nyingma Tibetan ground of being traditions or Shankara's Advaita Vedanta ground of being tradition. In these traditions, God, naming God as though God were a singular and particular person doesn't work. But for those who are profoundly drawn to singularity, um, and that is a real feature of reality. I look out my window and I see the leaves and they're utterly singular. Why not imagine that the divine has a feature of singularity, which might be the ground of our experience, our experiencing God as a person or person-like. And then, of course, there are traditions who say, no, 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 that's not where the action is. <laughs> the action is in relation. Praditya samutpara right? Uh, Praditya Samutpada is the nature of reality, that, ed, that to be is to be related. And if you, if you start substantializing relation, like those ground of being people do, you're going to miss out. Uh, and if you get focused on singularity without understanding that singularity is only what it is through relation, you're going to get that wrong too. So really, the, the deep action is in realizing uh, the, the interchangeability of Paricca Samutpada and Shunyata, of, of dependent co-arising and emptiness, right? Now, but in, in my account, all three of these ways of experiencing being point to real dimensions of being. It's, it's, it's out there in, in our faces. It's out in the tree. Uh, and these are real features of empirical experience. I think this threefoldness 
uh, maps onto three dimensions of the divine life. I mean, surprise, surprise, the Christian dude thinks Trinitarianly. <laughs> How did that happen? I mean, look, it's it's my theory. Clearly, it comes partly from my Christian encounter and my encounter with certain strands of Buddhist and Hindu non-dualism. So I'm not going to say this is my theory should apply to all uh, people who think about the nature of ultimate reality. Um, but it's, it's a way of pointing to one way of recognizing genuine multiplicity, noticing why traditions argue, what they're grooving on that they want to insist on, uh, what they're saying no to in another tradition that they perhaps should not say no to. Uh, that maybe they're, you know, you were talking about them just earlier, those Buddhists and Hindus arguing about emptiness and ground. You see what I'm saying, right? The the people who are saying emptiness are the, the relation people. And the people who are saying ground are the people who are saying, wow, sheer being, sheer being. Mm, mm-hmm. right? uh, and, and both are right, though they don't think that there's any way that both could be right. Um, mm. So anyway, th- these are ways to think about reality, but they don't, they didn't come to my head because I was trying to come up with a scheme. They came to my mind heart through my being uh, inculcated and tutored by these traditions by deep reading and practice. Right. Um, So that's, that suggests that there's some real positive worth in doing the work of studying uh, earnestly and, and practicing seriously. Yeah, I'm really glad that you um, brought up these three wonders because it was actually something that I I had on my list of things to talk to you about. And um, I always love the the conversation about wonder because for me, you know, my experience, the closest thing that I can experience as, you know, a kind of, I don't know, affective you know, non-discursive experience of God is is in wonder, and um, and uh, and and just kind of trying to wrap my head around you know the vast mystery of it all, and 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 what you know the kinds of um, feelings that that um, accrue from from the consideration of that, and 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 it also drew me to philosophy because philosophy, you know, famously. Um, I can't remember who said it, but philosophy begins in wonder, which is why I've always, you know, thought this, you know, distinction between philosophy and theology was a bit um, more modern and and problematic. Um, But, you know, to get to the, when you're talking about relation, um, this is a little bit of a, of a, of a segue into kind of a slightly different topic, but it, it kind of made me think of this when you were talking about relation, um, because it reminded me of the conversation you were having with Trip, where you were talking about the neighbor. And so relation, relationships <laughs> that we have. And, and, you know, one of the things that seems to be happening, at least inter, I mean, well, it's always been happening internationally, but certainly domestically and domestically, but domestically, we're seeing this, you know, ossification and, and petrification and, and worsening of relationships. And, and part of it seems to me that, um, on both sides, whether you're whether you're a religious person, traditionally speaking, or you're even a secular person, people are hardening into fundamentalisms of various types. You know, hardening into fundamentalisms of politics, 
fundamentalisms of religious perspective. And, um, and so I guess I'm just curious, you know, we have, we can have this idealized conversation between two people that are, you know, uh, we can pat ourselves on the back as being quite open-minded, <laughs> but people are not, uh, that is so much. And, and how do we, how do you, um, John, deal with them or what's your what's your sort of take on on how we should relate to the reality of existing fundamentalisms is there you know do you have suggestions on how to respond to it should we pay them any mind um do we just continue to do the work and it will all work itself out you know like what is what is your sort of practical um a pr pragmatic approach to the very real um, uh, existence of various fundamentalisms that are popping up all over the planet. Yeah, it's a serious, serious question. Um, and and I, I think it's so complicated that, uh, that a kind of multiplicity is required to figure out how to, how to deal with it because the, the roots go deep. And you, you need a kind of uh, multimodal analysis to figure out why it's happening and then how to address it. One thing is very clear to me, though, that you cannot compete with fundamentalism on its own terms. Mm. You, you can't, you can't uh, go directly at it by a kind of equal and opposite reaction because mm -hmm. it just intensifies itself. Right. And... Mm -hmm. And if that's so, then I think the clue, if there is to be a clue uh, on, on how to deal with this, has to come through the nonviolence traditions. What are the nonviolence traditions trying to teach us? What is Gandhi really on about when he makes an, a kind of radical, almost mathematical insistence that truth equals love? Falsehood equals violence. I mean, he, he thinks of these are as interchangeable terms, mind you, and which is why, by the way, uh, I, I, I find the the division between uh, affect and intellect problematic. Um, the, the deepest modern thinker on this issue, I think, is Gandhi, who insists the truth is love mm. and, and, and violence. Uh, equals falsehood. Mm. Reading all of Gandhi through that through that you know that double equation, they're logically uh, equivalent with each other. Would suggest that that a, 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 that the only way to meet fundamentalism um, is a kind of embrace that doesn't demonize and doesn't doesn't fall into the temptation to mirror the fundamentalist, mm -hmm. you know, oh my God, right? Because I, I, it's easy. It's, it's what I do all the time. To, to, to combat the fundamentalist is immediately to play on his terms and, and find myself demonizing just as they demonize. And then pretty, mm. pretty soon we're, we're gone. Uh, and I, I think this, this, this insight about truth as being love means that if you're going to ever introduce anything like a deeper truth to people who resist us uh, in the grips of fundamentalism, they're not going to open 
until there's a kind of embrace um, of their personhood, of their worth, of their dignity that, that begins perhaps to attenuate the need of the fundamentalist to cling tightly to an identity that has to be absolutized, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and I think this applies also to uh, the anti-vax crew, right? I mean, what are the actual scientists telling us, right? That the more information, the more information you give an anti-vaxxer, the more resistant they become. <laughs> what, what, what actually changes, right? A, a deep and uh, sustained relationship has the, you know, it's not necessarily guaranteed, but it's the only thing that's going to have a chance, right? It's, it's, it's intimate relationship of love that, that begins to attenuate the need to grip, you know, who am I if I don't have this belief? Who am I if I don't have this identity as Republican or a certain kind of Christian or a certain kind of anti-vaxxer? Uh, and so that that's the clue to this issue, right? Uh, you can't ignore, but nor can you play on their terms. And the easiest thing in the world is to play on their terms. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's that seems to be what's happening. And what, you know, and I consider myself quite on the left, um, but I but I see the, you know, the responding to, although even people who are anti-vaxxers would consider, that's what's interesting, you know, right? They've converged. <laughs> the far right and the far left have converged in this interesting place of, of well, certain portions of it. I shouldn't say all of them. Um, uh, and, um, and it's, it's just interesting to me the way in which, um, the hardening, the kind of moralized self-righteous hardening, which used to be associated with, you know, the moral majority on the right has now, you know, taken on just various forms and, and every kind of nook and cranny. But anyway, that was a beautiful response and I really appreciate it. And, um, we are getting to the end of our time, but I, I want to end on a note of, of radical theology, which is kind of the theme of this um, series of, of interviews that I'm doing. And, you know, again, like I said before, I think starting with you is really fantastic because, you know, I have plans to talk about, you know, Black liberation theology and, and, and Buddhist theology and Hindu theology, people that, you know, are, are less sort of um, double-belonged um, thinkers, although, of course, you know, quite... Um, uh, open-minded in that way, but 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 this kind of way of entering into the conversation um, of theology um, with this idea of theology without border or without walls um, is is um, is really a beautiful place to start. So and 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 so what I wanted to end on was to invite you to talk a little bit about this idea of the theologian as the one who prays truly or the, um, or the, I can't remember the quote, the the theologian is one who prays truly or the one who prays truly is the theologian or something like this. And maybe, maybe we would supplant praise for our, our lovely um, 
um, majority meditators in the audience <laughs> with, you know, the theologian is the one who meditates truly or, you know, practices some form of contemplative practice truly. Um, if prayer is something that you, you know, don't part, it doesn't particularly appeal to you. But this idea that theology is not simply a discursive practice, but is rather something that incorporates um, or is has never been separate from the the discipline the uh, of practice itself can you talk more about that conception of theology oh jacob you did you you did do your homework <laughs> you really did read uh deeply despite uh, your many uh demands no i i'm quoting there evagrius uh, one of the uh fourth-century church fathers who became a desert monastic. His story is fabulous. Uh, you ought to check it out. The man is wild. Uh, he, you know, fell in love with a married woman and had to be escorted out of uh, the city and then uh, went off to be close to the desert, but got himself in trouble there too, and then finally realized there was no fix for him without heading to uh, hang out with the desert fathers and mothers. Uh, so it's a great story. But he, one of the, the aphorisms he writes uh, out of his experience of being a desert monastic was this aphorism. The theologian is one who prays truly. The one who prays truly is the theologian. Well, theologia, right, is, is not just, you know, the writing of theological books. These days I get to be called a theologian, right, because I wrote a couple <laughs> of theology books. no. no. <laughs> That, that's not that's not what uh, Evagrius would have recognized. In fact, the Eastern Orthodox Church reserves the term theologian for just a you know a handful of people: John the theologian, the, the Gospel of John; uh, Simeon the new theologian; uh, Gregory the theologian. So there's just a handful of people who get to be called theologian uh, in the Eastern mm. Orthodox tradition, because because you had to be steeped in in deep prayer and then your discourse had to reflect uh, and bear the marks of that deep prayer and by the way i think the the character of the discourse of someone who is steeped in, in a profound practice is a theopoetics not merely a, a, a theologia that um, there's a there's a there's a music musicality and imaginative power to to theological discourse that emerges from proximity to intimacy with divinity. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, a, a lot of us are now talking about theopoetics as prior to and formative of theologia. Um, but yes, so let's begin by recognizing that the ancient tradition uh, the the contemplative traditions of Christianity, use this term theologia in this very deep way to refer to a particular poignant intimacy with ultimacy. Mm. Um, and then speech that emerges out of that. Now, why, if, if that's the primary definition definition of theologia, the, the first definition of theologia in the, in the Christian tradition, arguably, then... I can imagine that a certain kind of theologia might emerge from those who who are multilingual spiritually, right? Who who know how to speak uh, about divinity 
grounded in not just in not just praying but meditating and and that kind of theologian seems to me to be possible not only possible but actual <laughs> uh I think of uh, Raymond Panikkar, right? Who who is in many ways the the predecessor of us all. Um, he calls himself called himself prior to his passing Buddhist, Christian, and Hindu. His um, mom, I think, was uh, Spanish Catholic. And his dad was uh, a Hindu from Kerala, my, my home state. Uh, completely threw me the first time I met him because, you know, he has deep, dark complexion, but really super European features. Uh, and because he grew up in Spain, he speaks in a, a Spanish accent. And I first time I heard him say the word mutual fecundation, I thought, what is this guy? He looks like, you know, he, he, he's deeply Indian and deeply European and speaking with a Spanish accent and writing. He wrote in like six languages. Wow. He's like, well, what language do I want to write these ideas in? What language would be best for that? Uh, yeah. Right. And he he was such a theologian. Right. He was a theologian who um, was so deeply immersed in the practices of multiple traditions and languages I mean, we struggle with the Sanskrit exams. The man wrote, could write in Sanskrit, Spanish, probably Malayalam, my mother tongue, right? So the, this kind of theologian who's, who's not a dilettante, but a deep embodiment uh, of more than one tradition is a genuine religious possibility. It's not for everybody. Yeah. Um, but I think what such people do is to embody what I call the hospitality of receiving. Mm. Of, of, of looking at another tradition and saying, what do you have to teach me? Uh, and this is the very opposite of the impulse to missionize and erase religious diversity, right? Um, this is an idea I get out of Gandhi too. In, in many of his speeches to missionaries who were fascinated by him, uh, he, he would say to them, I miss something in you. You come to India to give us many things. Uh, and it's good and well that you do so. But, but I miss any sense of expectancy that you, that you might find something good here. And there is so much that is good in India, you know, and it breaks my heart when I read sentences like that. Like Gandhi has to tell these, you know, white missionaries that there's plenty that's good in India. Come on. It, yeah. You know, uh, and yet, there he is. He's saying, what if you met us with a hospitality of receiving, not just the hospitality of giving? Now, I think the multi-religious theologian is the embodiment of that kind of hospitality of receiving. The hospitality that says, you know, that doesn't look at the other and say, I only have stuff to give you. You have nothing to give me, right? In practicing the hospitality of receiving, I let the other be the other. In and you know, in the fullness of their otherness, and then seek to receive from that, uh, seek to receive riches from the other. 
mm-hmm. that's that's the possibility of a, a certain kind of multi-religious theologian in this deep sense of theology. I love that, and I, I this idea of the hospitality of receiving <clears throat> it seems so it, it's applicable. It occurs to me that it's applicable beyond even um, you know trying to get beyond this merely missionary approach like you could you could you could even extend it into kind of the political domain where people are missionizing their own political perspective and incapable of of offering that hospitality of receiving so you know even beyond what we would quote unquote call you know categorizes the religious it seems like (laughs) just an ethic that we should be (laughs) living with you know um extensively in all aspects of our lives I'd say amen. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been such a fantastic interview, um, John. I have really, really enjoyed it. Normally, I wrap these things up um, within 45, maximum 60 minutes, but we've been talking now for almost an hour and a half, and I loved doing that because it, you're just such a fascinating thinker and theologian. And you have just so many um, refreshing ideas to share um, and approaches uh, to this this idea of, of theology and multi-religious um, belonging and experience and identity. And so I just want to thank you so much for sharing your time with the listeners. And it's been such a pleasure. Oh, Jacob, it's been a complete treat for me. Uh, obviously, you have a way of winning uh the trust of people you interview and you seem to pull out stuff from them uh, that they didn't even imagine they would be saying. So uh, it was a real treat.